Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And on your screen before you right now is the logo of a company that we've been talking about for weeks now. And that is, of course, Bungie, makers of Destiny. And before that, Halo. But this isn't a story about their being acquired by Sony or really any acquisitions at all. It's also not exactly the story of Bungie. It might in part, be the story of Microsoft. In fact, on the thumbnail to this video, that's what we are looking at is Microsoft being sued, but they're being sued primarily because of their purchase of Bungie. Yes, I assume all of you knew this who are in virtual legality, but of course, Bungie has been owned by Microsoft and is soon to be owned by Sony. If they then leave Sony and get purchased by Nintendo at some point in the future, they will have hit the trifecta, but we'll see if that ever happens. It's also not the story of just Bungie and Microsoft, but also the story of Bungie's composer, or more specifically, a composer that licensed music, as he claims, to Bungie. Now, this particular composer, Marty O'Donnell, as well as his music writing partner, we've already covered in virtual legality in a different context because he was sued, got into a lawsuit, got into an arbitration over whether or not he could use the music of the spheres, music that he had composed in part for the Destiny Project. And you can check out that video if you're interested. As I say in the thumbnail, it's complicated. So you might want to check that out for more details there. But he's back in the news as he gave an exclusive interview to Eurogamer today. And Eurogamer entitled the story about that interview as follows. Original Halo composers sue Microsoft over unpaid royalties dating back 20 years and instruct lawyers to explore Halo TV show injunction. Now, if you haven't been following that either, Paramount Plus is set to launch a Halo TV show imminently. And according to this article, Marty O'Donnell and Mike Salvatore, his writing partner, might try to enjoin Paramount's release of that TV show. Now, we'll talk about why I think that particular request for injunction is unlikely to win, even if the case that Mr. O'Donnell and Mr. Salvatore bring has some success but we'll get to that in just a minute. Let's take a look at the Eurogamer article. The original Halo music composers are suing Microsoft over unpaid royalties. Marty O'Donnell and Mike Salvatore, who created the iconic Halo music used in the Bungie-developed Halo games and more Halo products, claim Microsoft still owes them money relating to royalties dating back 20 years, 20 plus years, as it turns out. Lawyers representing the pair filed the lawsuit to a Washington state court when... In June 2020, so while I'm talking about it today, while the thumbnail here says Microsoft sued, it's accurate for two years ago. And that lawsuit has rumbled on ever since with depositions and discovery undertaken. A date for mediation is set for next week, but if no agreement is reached, the dispute may go to court. Now, there's a couple of things to note right there before we get into the weeds on the details of this at all. One. This lawsuit was filed a while back, even in legal time. We talk in virtual legality about how long it takes legal undertakings to actually occur, and it takes a long, long time. But one thing we can take just from the knowledge that it was launched in June 2020, that depositions and discovery were undertaken, is that this lawsuit was not kicked out at one of the early stages of litigation. We talk about this all the time, of course, that a litigation can be made by one party against another party at any time for any reason. You can file a lawsuit virtually anywhere. But the question after that is, 
Do you have a case at all? Did you file in the right court? Do the things that you say in your complaint document make any amount of sense? And if the answer to that is no, there are both federal and state rules of civil procedure that allow the other party to say, let's not waste our time and legal expense on this, your honor. There is clearly no merit in this case, even if you grant them everything that they say in their complaint document. Here, because we now know that this lawsuit is actually years old, we can take on the assumption that it was not kicked out for summary dismissal. And so there is at least the appearance of some validity in the claims made. So for those of you on social media or otherwise coming into my comments or dropping me a note on this saying, I think this has no chance, know that that might be the case. One aspect of this that we can't see is the contract in question. And that's really where all of this is going to turn. But even if that ultimately winds up being the case, it isn't as it stands right now. You don't get to discovery and depositions without there being a chance of winning the lawsuit. That's effectively what the court has held by allowing it to go so far. Continuing with the article, in a recent development, O'Donnell and Salvatore have instructed their lawyers to explore the possibility of blocking the release of the upcoming TV show with a preliminary injunction. Now, we're going to talk about the details here. We're going to talk about the interview here. We, of course, have to take it with a grain of salt. And so far as we are getting only one side of the story highlighted down here below, Microsoft declined to comment. Paramount failed to respond in time for publication. So we know that Microsoft and Paramount didn't give any extra information on this. It's a pending litigation. Oftentimes, that is wise. I don't generally recommend to my clients they go and talk about these things to an outlet like Eurogamer, et cetera, et cetera. But... Even though that might be wise, we still get some information from what O'Donnell in particular and Salvatore say in this article. They say, in essence, that they are not getting paid the money they think they're owed. We'll talk about the details there. But to start out with, because Eurogamer highlighted it at the top, the impetus behind this interview, the reveal of this all happening, appears to be that O'Donnell and Salvatore are considering trying to block the release of that TV show, which Paramount and presumably Microsoft have put considerable resources in and are invested in seeing have a high return on investment. Now you see here the reference to a preliminary injunction. We've talked about that in other contexts here in virtual legality. Generally speaking, in order to win a preliminary injunction in most jurisdictions, you have to show that you have some likelihood of winning on the merits of your case. You have to show that you would be irreparably harmed if you didn't get this injunction. Right, that the release of the Halo TV show will irreparably harm you, that the balance of equities weighs in your favor, and that goes to fairness kinds of concepts, and that the public interest also weighs in your favor, that the law and society in this particular case doesn't want to see copyrights infringed or what have you, depending on what the contract actually says. Now, I did a little bit of research here, and we can actually go and see that Washington doesn't describe it exactly the same. Washington actually describes something about having an inadequate legal remedy that's kind of irreparable harm, and then says the following, one who seeks relief by temporary or permanent injunction must show that he has a clear legal or equitable right, that he has a well-grounded fear of immediate invasion of that right, and that the acts complained of are either resulting in or will result in actual and substantial injury to him. Since injunctions are addressed to the equitable powers of the court, that's fairness, we've talked about that before, the listed criteria must be examined in light of equity, including balancing the relative interests of the parties and, if appropriate, the interests of the public. 
So if you're paying close attention at home, you see most of this stuff represented here. Balance of equities, that was the second to last part. Public interest, that was the last part. Irreparable harm is really talking about legal remedies. Likelihood of the win is kind of implied in all of this, but might be a little bit weaker in Washington. We don't really know, and I can't claim to be a Washington licensed or practicing lawyer, but we start to get that kind of feeling here. We get that the court in this particular case didn't have, didn't grant the preliminary injunction an issue because they were worried about imminent and irreparable elimination. The property owners have an adequate remedy at law in the form of monetary damages. They have not demonstrated they are entitled to the extraordinary remedy of injunctive relief. And the reason I only highlight that for you here narratively is because that's always the difference, right? Regardless of what this says specifically, regardless of what we've looked in the federal context and the California context, the ultimate power of the court to use its equitable discretion to issue an injunction or a restraining order of this kind is largely premised on this irreparability and in most cases, the likelihood of a win. Said another way, if we can fix it for you later, we are unlikely to grant you an injunction in the law. That's generally how the courts think of things. And when you see a legal remedy, when you see Washington reference that a legal remedy might be inadequate, what they're talking about there is money. The legal remedy is money. The equitable remedy is forcing someone to do something or not do something. So when they say there's an inadequate legal remedy, they mean, hey, if we don't stop this, if we don't issue this injunction, there's no amount of money we can give after the fact to fix this. Now, assuming that O'Donnell and Salvatore here are getting completely screwed over and stiffed by Microsoft, it is difficult for me sitting here to look at the release of the Paramount Halo TV show and say, well, Okay, let's assume they're right in every argument that they're making, that Microsoft owes them money in royalties for the use of this thing. How is that not fixed after the fact with money being sent by Microsoft to O'Donnell and Salvatore? And I think the answer to that is very likely that money would solve this problem. And so when you're looking at this particular issue, I think it's unlikely if you're looking forward to the Paramount Halo TV show that an injunction is going to be issued because I think the most likely scenario there is one, after their lawyers look at it, they say, hey, this doesn't make a lot of sense for you to spend your time and money actually having me file this motion. Or two, after filing the motion, the court looks at it and says, I don't see an irreparable harm here. Even if you win your case, Microsoft just owes you the money that they owe you for using the product under the contract that we have now said is valid as a court. And of course, in the alternative, if we don't find that valid, a lot of people could be harmed, uh, including the folks at Paramount who are otherwise kind of innocent bystanders to all this if we hold up this TV show. So I think it's very difficult for them to win just on that, right? We haven't even talked about the details of what's happening here. But when you look at this, when you see it reported on in various places as, ooh, the Halo TV show could be lost, I think that very unlikely because it's the kind of thing where money solves the problem. Continuing with Eurogamer, O'Donnell and Salvatore are behind the creation of Halo's iconic soundtrack used on a raft of Halo games and products. This includes the famous Halo monk chant as well as the rousing dur 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 refrain Halo players know well. <laughs> it's hard to write music uh, in an article form, isn't it, Eurogamer? And yes, I know what you're referring to. Their lawsuit brought six causes of action against Microsoft. Breach of contract, that pretty much goes without saying whenever you're going to bring a contract claim, it's probable that somebody else breached. Breach of fiduciary duty to develop the royalty income in a joint venture. Now, this is interesting. This implies that the contract has some kind of either express or implied concept, right? If you're licensing out 
your music or you're licensing out your character that you made to someone else, one of the things that your lawyer will tell you to watch out for in that contract is, hey, make sure that they have an obligation not to shelve it, not to kill it, especially if it's an exclusive kind of deal. Because if they're the ones that are in full control of it and they know they owe you some amount of money if they use it, they might be disinclined to use it. So you might want to consider having in the contract, hey, you're obligated to try to market this. You're obligated to try to develop this into something. You're obligated to try to use it because this is how I'm going to keep my lights on and feed my family. Third, a breach of duty to act in good faith and fair dealing. We've seen this with breach claims, right? You generally use this if the words on the page in the contract don't necessarily get you to where you're going. You can't point to an express breach maybe, but you can say, look, they're using the rules in this particular license, in this particular contract, in a way that we could not have possibly anticipated to screw us over. And so court, you should help us out with that. Failure to provide an accounting partnership, which sounds to me very much like there's some kind of audit right. There's a right to receive the books and records, to review the things that might apply. And that's very, very common in a royalty-based agreement, right? If you're going to get 20 cents on the dollar of every time they sell a lunchbox or every time they sell a CD in this particular case, you might want to have the right to say, okay, you've given me a check for X amount of dollars, but I want to go see what your gross revenue was. I want to go see what your sales were. And if that's written into the contract and they don't do that for you, well, then you can start to sue for this kind of thing. Unjust enrichment is kind of the equitable side of a breach of contract. Hey, if we agreed on rights and obligations to be exchanged between the parties and you don't do yours and we do ours, then you're being unjustly enriched when you don't follow through on your side of the bargain. And tortious interference, which is generally speaking, talking about interfering with a contractual relationship of the other party. Don't know exactly what this might be referring to, but as we will see, there is a third entity involved, and maybe that's what this is talking about. Probably doesn't matter to the overall scheme of things, uh, but that's what I see there in the description that Eurogamer included. Now, they've got this phone interview that I talked about at the top with Marty O'Donnell. In a phone interview with Eurogamer, O'Donnell claimed that he and Salvatore had tried to gain clarity from Microsoft for more than a decade on the alleged unpaid royalties, but finally decided to launch a lawsuit after failing to make progress with the company. As we talked about, Microsoft declined comments. So did Paramount, or at least Paramount didn't respond in time. O'Donnell says he and Salvatore trading as O'Donnell Salvatore Inc. And that might be a European uh, means of saying operating as another business, right? O'Donnell and Salvatore co-owned, it looks like this entity, O'Donnell Salvatore Inc. And created and licensed the Halo music to Bungie, a deal that remained in place even as the company was bought by Microsoft in 2000, ahead of the launch of Halo Combat Evolved a year later. Microsoft's counterclaim in this lawsuit seeks a declaration that the Halo music qualifies as work for hire, and as a result, Microsoft qualifies as the author of that work. Now, here's an excellent place to talk about some of these concepts. So, what we've got here is a claim that we'll see writ large in some of the quotes in this article by Marty O'Donnell and his partner that they had a company that made music that was separate from Bungie. And that company made the Halo theme and potentially other Halo music and licensed it to Bungie. As we've talked about with respect to copyright, if you make it, it's yours with one big exception that Microsoft is trying to use, which says, hey, if you're working for me when you make it, if I'm paying you to make that, then it's ours instead. So Donald says he and Salvatore did this and licensed it to Bungie. And there's some evidence that you can find online to that effect. If you go look at a CD entitled Myth Total Soundtrack, 
Uh, and you look at some of the soundtrack tracks here, you note a couple of things. One, it was released in 1999. And the 40th track here is the Halo theme. So as he suggests in his interview with Eurogamer in 1999, there was at least some version of the Halo theme in existence. And if we look further at this, we see licensing language here that we can't quite read in this picture, but helpfully it's also included on the CD itself. And it says, total soundtrack, Bungie, 1999 Bungie Software Products Corporation, all rights reserved, which is a long title for Bungie. I didn't realize that was their whole name. So that's the CD. They had a manufacturing right to make this thing and to sell it out into the public. But there are different licenses for different aspects of these things. The music on that CD is listed here as copyright 1999 O'Donnell Salvatore Total Audio Inc. ASCAP all rights reserved, composed, produced, and performed by Martin O'Donnell and Michael Salvatore with narration by Jeffrey Charlton Perrin, made in the USA, which yeah, is important. It's always good. Uh, and so you see a reference to a copyright in 1999 to, at bare minimum, the Halo theme. Now, presumably, that's not the finished Halo theme. Halo wouldn't release for a couple of years. And there's obviously more music in Halo. But this does suggest that this was the situation that the music was actually from this group, that it was licensed to Bungie, that Bungie had the mechanical rights to put out uh, these specific CDs for this purpose. And then moving forward, Bungie, of course, gets bought, right? Bungie gets acquired by Microsoft in 2000. Then they leave and then they join Activision and then they leave. And now it looks like they're joining Sony. So, you know, who knows what the next decade will bring for Bungie, but at the time, as we'll see in this interview, that created problems because whenever you're doing an acquisition and people ask me, why does the Microsoft Activision acquisition take so long? Why does the Sony Bungie acquisition take so long? Part of it is that regulatory infrastructure we've talked about so much in virtual reality. Part of it is logistics. Part of it is when you're talking about a giant, giant, giant company, they're going to have contracts up to wazoo and you have to read through them and you have to figure out what they do and you have to figure out who they notify and you have to figure out what you bought or didn't buy, Right. Now, Microsoft argues against this. Microsoft says this is a work made for hire. They say, if we look at the Copyright Act, we can have a work made for hire where the author is not the individual who made it. It's not Marty O'Donnell. It's Microsoft. There are two situations in which a work made for hire is produced, according to the Copyright Office. And this is broadly correct. Obviously, courts have different interpretations of these various things, uh, but this is broadly correct. One, when the work is created by an employee as part of the employee's regular duties, right? If you're signed up to an employment contract, you're getting a salary from your employer and you make something, then the law looks at that and says, yes, you got paid for that as an employee to make that thing. And so that thing is actually your employer's. Or two, when a certain type of work is created as a result of an express written agreement between the creator and a party specially ordering or commissioning the work. So here you have something that might be more likely in this context, something like a consulting agreement or a custom development agreement. You might see that more often in technology and software, right? Where you say, hey, we're going to pay this big chunk of money. We want you to develop this thing for us. You're not our employee, certainly. We're not paying you health benefits. But when it's made, we will have paid for it. And we need to say in that contract, this was a work made for hire. And you can get into these arguments about these various things. As part of that, you'll also say it's assigned in general in the contracts, but that's what the fight is over. Now, certainly you can't have a work made for hire, whether commissioned or employee on something that was made before you had any relationship to the work 
in question. But you might be able to argue it going forward from there. The iterations on it, whatever music might be added to that. So that's one of the ways that these kinds of fights can get messy. Now, O'Donnell and Salvatore, as Eurogamer puts it, disputes this. It was never work for hire. It was always a license deal. So that's what we did with Halo. With the first Halo music ever, that was written and recorded in 1999 for the first time. It was licensed. Bungie didn't get bought by Microsoft for over a year. But in May 2000, O'Donnell becomes a Bungie employee working as the studio's audio director. Salvatore remains independent, working at O'Donnell Salvatore. O'Donnell also remained part of O'Donnell Salvatore, Inc. So he's an employee at Bungie. He's also a part, owner, presumably, of O'Donnell Salvatore, Inc. So we're creating some tough legal situations for the court to unravel some 22 years later. Next quote, But at the time, the Halo music for this very nascent beginning thing called Halo was still owned by O'Donnell Salvatore and licensed to Bungie for both 1999 and 2000. Again, these are Marty O'Donnell's claims. On day one of signing my employee contract with Microsoft now, I wrote this addendum at the back where you're supposed to. And I said, by the way, the Halo music up to now is licensed. It's owned by O'Donnell Salvatore, Inc. I'm an ASCAP, American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers composer. And that's the way it needs to be going forward. And I told them, look, what you bought was a licensed deal for this music. They never had an internal composer who wrote original music as an employee. So this was all new for them too. And so I was like, hey, if you guys can't handle this, no harm, no foul. I'll go back to Chicago and, you know, maybe I can freelance this stuff. I don't know. But they said, okay, we'll let you do ASCAP music and we'll deal with the license later on the music because like how much of this music is going to be used in Halo? Presumably in that interview context, the suggestion is Microsoft is like, well, we're not really that worried about it. It's a big first person shooter. It's probably not going to have that heavy of a musical element. Certainly not one of the most widely recognized musical themes in the video game industry in its entirety. That, that's, that's unlikely to happen. So the story goes. But you get the notion of what's happening here, right? We talked about there being multiple license types. Music is very complicated. ASCAP is essentially a public performance license group, right? If you aren't familiar with it, they are something like a guild. They're a nonprofit body that helps to manage music, that helps to make sure that if you've got your music out there, that it isn't being publicly performed in an untoward way and you're not getting the royalties that you're owed. Wikipedia says ASCAP collects licensing fees from users of music created by ASCAP members, then distributes them back to its members as royalties. In effect, the arrangement is the product of a compromise. When a song is played, the user does not have to pay the copyright holder directly, nor does the music creator have to bill a radio station for the use of a song. So there are a number of these. ASCAP is not the only one, but they work together to essentially allow us to live in the society we live in, where you have music performed in all sorts of different contexts. And hopefully... The people that originate that music, that create that music, get some recompense for the fact that we're enjoying listening to it. Obviously, music creators, composers, all sorts of folks have issues with all sorts of things and the way copyright is delivered, the way various groups work. But this is ideally how it's supposed to happen. And Microsoft, apparently, at least as described by Marty O'Donnell, isn't terribly used to this back in 1999 and 2000. Marty O'Donnell has a broader background working in commercials and other contexts where he was more used to ASCAP and working outside of industries like the video game industry. So he's telling them, hey, we can walk away, but this is the deal that we did. I licensed it in from my other company. Yes, I can be your audio director, but it's still licensed in. You need to know that. He continues, this is 2000, so it's more than a year before we released. And I remember saying, I have no idea. I don't know. But 
if they made a mistake on that first initial conversation with me, it was that somebody should have said, well, who's going to make the decision on how much music is written and used in this game? Because then I would have said, well, that'll be my decision. I have a vested interest at this point to use this music for the game. And so what he's saying here, this is a very interesting interview, uh, is, hey, okay. So they're thinking, well, we won't use that much music, but at the same time, they're making me audio director. I like my music. And so when I'm in charge, I put music front and center with Halo. And it's music that I made and am making, I think, as this interview goes, in a different organization licensed in for some kind of royalty that I will otherwise be getting for your use of the music that I'm putting in the game. So he's admitting that might be a mistake on their part. That might not be a great way to get all of the people in the boat rowing in the same direction because I do have a vested interest in using the music that I'm otherwise licensing in and making more money on. Uh, and so that's what he's admitting here. Uh, but as we continue on, things get even a little bit more complicated. So he says, yes, that's when it's first started. We'll deal with it later. And believe it or not, I couldn't get anybody's attention to deal with the fact that this was officially licensed music until after we shipped Halo 1. They didn't settle this issue about licensing in, ownership of the music, anything else, until after Halo 1 shipped, according to Mr. O'Donnell. And I kept saying, hey, we need to deal with this. O'Donnell Salvatore actually paid the musicians for all the work that we did with live musicians in Chicago and then ran those bills in through Microsoft. We were the union signatory for the voice talent, which was all union. And O'Donnell Salvatore, my company, was the union signatory on all the voices in Halo 1. So he's audio director, he's composer. And lest you think, according to Mr. O'Donnell, he's not doing anything, he's just taking double checks there. He says, look, that other organization was actually doing things. We were running all of the audio and music for this game, including paying people. And we had to go and get reimbursements from the company that was actually doing this kind of thing. Now, those reimbursements might come up with work made for hire. Those are the kinds of things that Microsoft might argue otherwise, whether this is commissioned or not, et cetera, et cetera. But then they solved this issue, or so Mr. O'Donnell thinks. As the story goes in this interview, he says, after all that happens, we need to deal with this. We need to deal with this. That's when the first new contract came in, where we were like, yes, we will sign over the publishing rights and the copyright on this music for Halo to Microsoft. However, I wanted to do it the way that it's done in movies and television, where the composers are still ASCAP composers, and it's not pure work for hire. There is a contract for any ancillary royalties, so use in commercials, use in anything outside the game specifically, or sales of soundtracks. Now, we're going to talk about the details of what he's describing here, but this is an important piece of the puzzle. So in 1999, he says, I'm working on Halo. I'm making it, I'm licensing it to Bungie. Bungie gets sold to Microsoft. He takes a job at both Bungie and then later at Microsoft. Both organizations are still in existence. They're still making things, licensing in it to Bungie at Microsoft. So realistically to Microsoft. Halo 1 ships. He says, we got to solve this. And then they enter into a contract. And here the copyright to the Halo music actually changes hands, at least as far as I can tell in this interview. So it's no longer licensed in. This isn't actually a copyright dispute about whether it's a work made for hire until Microsoft gets involved with its counter complaint. This is about what this contract says. Marty O'Donnell says, we entered into a contract, we gave them all these rights, and we were supposed to get ancillary royalties. And Microsoft appears to be saying maybe, but it only applies to X, Y, and Z, and everything else was a work made for hire. Or maybe they're claiming everything was a work made for hire. It's a little bit unclear outside of the whole thing. But this is why it's important, because the details say that Marty O'Donnell and Salvatore should be getting 20% of anything outside the game that uses the music, which he argues is actually reasonable. A lot of composers and music people get more like 
So I was like, look, we'll do it for 20%. And along with that, there should be some sort of quarterly accounting where we can see here's where you've used it. It's just a typical music deal. That's what we thought we wrote into the contract. And 20% of, of course of soundtrack sales. So we were expecting quarterly to see, this is how simple it would have been for us. 500 soundtracks were sold at $10 a soundtrack. Microsoft made nine, or let's say it was sold at 11 and Microsoft made 10. And here's your check for $2 per soundtrack to O'Donnell Salvatore. So we could see the number of soundtracks sold and here's our 20%. We never got that kind of accounting for decades, if you can believe it. Now, taking a step back, you have to draft the accounting terms in the contract to say what it is that you're supposed to get. Yes, you can say I'm supposed to get reasonable access to the books and records. But when you're talking about royalties, very often you'll actually describe the information that you're supposed to receive. You will account to us what your gross revenue is, how many units were sold, how this gross revenue was calculated, how our royalty was calculated, and other information based on what you want to see. Now, if that is in the contract, remember, we can't see the contract then this starts to sound like an even more legitimate complaint because even if Microsoft thinks it's paying them properly, if you're not accounting for it the way that you should be, that still is in and of itself a breach of the agreement and could potentially be worthy of some damages. Eurogamer then continues saying, O'Donnell claims he didn't want to make too big of a stink over the royalties issue while still a Microsoft employee because I wanted to keep my job, which does check out. And you might be considering, hey, what about the statute of limitations for something like this? Right? And it could apply. I, again, don't pretend to know Washington statutes of limitations for contract breach. But remember, the complaint is essentially continuing. It's ongoing. Halo Infinite released last year. Halo on Paramount Plus is set to release this year. So when you talk about these things, if there is a breach, if there are royalties to be owed that Microsoft isn't paying, then this is actually a conversation about what's happening in 2022, 2021, 2020, rather than just what happened in 1999 and 2000. We're just trying to get them to do this thing that we thought everybody agreed to 20 years ago, O'Donnell said. O'Donnell said he and Salvatore have received royalties from Microsoft on a quarterly basis over the years. But the payments were not connected to accounting that showed, for example, how many units were sold or any deals done, which is exactly what we just said. And then the check we would get some seemed like, okay, if this is 20%, then it doesn't seem like Microsoft is really making much money. So we would say, could you guys tell us what the numbers are? And then they just wouldn't. But sure enough, four months later, you would get another little check and just, here's your amount. But it wasn't connected to anything. This is another important part of the story, right? They're not accounting in the way that O'Donnell expects here, but they are paying something, which in and of itself is indicative of the fact that Microsoft believes there's something here that they owe money for. Big giant corporations, even though they can lose a billion dollars in the couch cushions, don't generally like to just send checks out when they aren't otherwise obligated to. So this is a part of the kind of uh, conditional evidence that you might show to a court in this situation. Say, yeah, look, they paid us some, but they were paying us for something that they weren't otherwise explaining. So we think there could be more there. We're not quite sure, uh, but we need to do that accounting in order to figure it out. And so they continue. It just seemed to us like, well, wait a minute. Hey, what about Halo 1 Anniversary? You guys did a whole new soundtrack. Then you did a whole new compilation. How much did you make on that? And what happened when you did the anime and these other films that you did, which are ancillary? They're not the game. They're ancillary to the game. They did tons of different films that had the music in it and video projects and stuff. And we never saw any accounting on that. The ongoing lawsuit is, according to O'Donnell, currently about working out exactly how much money is potentially owed before setting a dollar amount for damages. It is not, O'Donnell insisted, a claim of ownership over the Halo music. As we talked about reading through this interview, looking at this entire topic, it seems like everybody's in agreement 
that the copyright to the Halo music was transferred over sometime after the release of Halo 1 under a contract that was, according to O'Donnell, supposed to get his composing entity royalties based on their use of it outside of the game. The fight on that is essentially, hey, how much money should that be? What should it apply to? With Microsoft's counterclaim suggesting, at least as referenced here in the Eurogamer article, that Microsoft believes it shouldn't actually attach to every bit of Halo music. So there's a fight there. The Halo theme would seem to be a pretty important component of that fight. We show that it's made before Microsoft even gets involved. And this is the kind of thing that happens that means you don't get out of court very quickly, right? This is all a mess. O'Donnell and Salvatore were recently angered by Microsoft for failing to credit the original composers of the Halo music in last year's blockbuster shooter, Halo Infinite. I don't believe I saw it with respect to the Paramount uh, TV show, although that could always be in the credits uh, to any given episode. And of course, if you're Microsoft's lawyers and you were sued in 2020 over this kind of thing, it's the type of thing where a lawyer might advise you on the Microsoft side, well, don't acknowledge them because then it starts to look like it isn't work made for hire, depending on how you actually go about doing that. So lawyers, I know you all love us, but that's the kind of advice that can sometimes happen. Oh, they're suing us for this. Let's not add to their case potentially because you don't want to get into a situation where Marty O'Donnell or his partner turns around and says, ha, see, you're acknowledging the situation. And so now we've got you and that'll help us in our court case. So I can see a lawyer actually arguing that on the Microsoft side, but certainly you see things in this article that suggest that that action uh, led to even more hurt feelings. I feel disrespected, Salvatore told Eurogamer in a phone interview. I mean, part of our contract even said, if you're going to re-record any of our stuff, you need to contact us, talk to us about it, give us some sort of information. And we've heard nothing. Look at Halo Infinite, that first trailer that came out in the announcement of Halo, you saw Master Chief's leg come in and the piano went gung, 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 which not only did I write, but I played and I fought for back during 2007's Halo 3 days. I haven't seen my name or Mike's name on any of the pieces, etc., etc. So you get into this situation where there is some emotionality driving it, but at the end of the day, it strikes me reading through all this that it's a contract complaint. And so... What we don't have is the most important piece of this puzzle, and that is the contract in its entirety. Now, you can get into work made for hire. You could potentially get into some equitable arguments here, uh, but I'm just not sure how much that'll play. And then we get to the last line. Again, I think this was probably the impetus for these phone interviews with Eurogamer. O'Donnell told Eurogamer he now plans to instruct his lawyers to explore enjoining the TV show's release. As we talked about above, I don't think that's very likely to find purchase. You never know. Uh, and you don't make any of the shots you don't take. However, I think it's pretty likely that the Halo TV show is still going to go off uh, and that this will just proceed on in the background. It is very interesting though, right? Because part of you might want to come into my comments and say, well, Microsoft wouldn't make a mistake like this. They know what's in the contract, et cetera, et cetera. Some of you might come on the other side of the thing and say, this is what they do to composers, et cetera, et cetera. And I would just remind you here in Virtually Gaudi, we have talked about really, really weird contract interpretations by giant multinational corporations in the past, right? We talked about Alan Dean Foster's fight with Disney. We talked about the fact that Disney apparently was taking the position that they could bifurcate a contract purchased in an acquisition and take only the rights to publish and not the obligations to pay, which is absolutely crazy to me. And Disney got all sorts of attacked for it, rightly so in my opinion. And I think Disney is correcting this slowly. Uh, to be honest, it has been so slow that I have seen some movement forward for the most famous of authors, but still some others complaining about it. And I just feel bad because that kind of legal theory, we can buy half of the contract, but not the other half, is just totally without merit. 
So when you look at this, I can believe Mr. O'Donnell here in the fact that there might be a totally valid ASCAP other industry type royalty based license that Microsoft just doesn't want to pay under and wasn't paying attention to because they didn't have a logistical framework for doing that. Uh, and when you're a big giant corporation and you don't have that already in your pipelines, this kind of thing can happen. But if that's the case, doubling down on this just looks bad for everybody involved. It looks terrible for everybody involved. Microsoft, if they wind up losing this and the case was easy, the contract was easy, they look awful. On the other hand, if Mr. O'Donnell here is overselling what's in this contract, uh, then he too could look bad. And certainly he's got a history now of dealing with court cases, dealing with arbitration. I believe Eurogamer calls his leaving of Bungie uh, acrimonious. Uh, and certainly that seems to be the case at the time. But I'm inclined to look at this and say, a lot of the language here, what is described here matches up with my understanding of how these things work. And I've said before in Virtual Legality, I know enough to be dangerous, especially when it comes to things like music licenses, which are highly, highly, highly complex. But it matches up with my understanding of what something like this could look like if you were licensing in, you wanted to have your own com composition house outside of one of these entities. Uh, and I think there's some, some value here at the end here saying, well, look, Microsoft effectively didn't know what they were doing, uh, especially in 2000. And that also rings true to me. Uh, in certain respects. So what do you think? Do you think Marty O'Donnell is telling a, a fair story here? Do you think Microsoft could make such a massive, massive uh, issue out of actually paying some of the most famous music composers uh, in video games? Or do you think the opposite? Do you think Microsoft's probably in the right? They looked at this. A lot of this is work made for hire and the fight is over some modicum of details uh, and nothing much will come out of it, at least not in the public. Now, I want to let you know Fair viewers and listeners of Virtual Gallery, I have reached out to Marty O'Donnell, see if he will come on the show. Uh, and he indicated he might, uh, but he has to get permission. So we'll see if that winds up happening. I would love to have him on. Let him know in the comments here. Ping him on Twitter that you'd love to see him in this space because I'd love to uh, talk to him about these things, potentially the other stuff uh, that he's got going on as well. Otherwise, this has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy talking about the business and law of video games, software, technology, pop culture, and everything that you or I might otherwise be interested in, please consider supporting the channel. We cannot do it without support from viewers and listeners like you. We've got a Patreon. I think we've got some wonderful tiers. I might be looking at expanding or changing some of those tiers in the very near future. Also, Sundays at 11 a.m. Eastern here in the United States, join me and the crew at the Seasoned Gaming Bitcast. We're already up, I think, almost 1,000 subscribers in the past few weeks. If you like this kind of discussion, intellectual, analytical, please come join us over there. We're going to have a two-hour podcast every Sunday. It's a fantastic time. I think you'll like it. Otherwise, just subscribe. Tell your friends we're here. Share us on Reddit and Twitter and Facebook gaming or wherever else you might find yourself. Every little bit helps. YouTube know that we exist. And when YouTube knows we exist, it's far nicer to sending our videos all around all by itself. Thank you so much for checking this out. If you did check it out on YouTube and if you listen to it instead as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.